Hello, great men and women. It's Friday, and that means it's time for Drinks with Great Men in History. I'm your host, Zach DeBacco, and today I am no closer to finding myself a show name than Catherine was to freeing the serfs. But that's fine for now. Today on DGMH, we are chasing the Catherine episode with yet another jump across the pond. I had a lot of good choices from the Catherine episode. The Seven Years' War was an option, of course the French Revolution, and I've pretty much beat the American Revolution to death already this season. And I really have nothing else to say about hemorrhoids. I even considered covering the art and life of Elizabeth Vigée Lebrun, which was freaking fascinating, but after some contemplation and reflection, I have decided to continue my examination of African slavery. Why, you ask? Well, aside from the fact that it's really fucking important, most of us just don't know enough details about what really went on. And it's more fitting than you might think, for as Catherine was failing to free her serfs, the institution of slavery was beginning to crumble. So get ready for drinks with great men in history. It's some history for you, a reason to drink for me, it's the history of the great men and now women that made history come to be. Today we are going to discuss a few big issues that were taking place around the end of Catherine's reign, during the rule of one of her contemporaries, King George III. You remember George, right? The guy we broke up with during the Washington episode? Well, he pretty much had nothing to do with ending the slave trade. So, Dr. DGMH, oh, I like that one, but I'm not a doctor, so it seems misleading, but we are definitely on the right track with that one. What the hell are we covering today? Today we are going to look at one of the major issues that helped bring about the end of the African slave trade, at least in the British Empire, in which the empire almost overnight seemed to switch from the number one slave trader to number one advocate for abolition. Well, sort of anyway. Britain wouldn't abolish the slave trade until 1807, and slavery outright until 1833. And please don't think for one second that these actions or changes in policy diminish the horrific role of the English, and most Western nations for that matter, in the growth and expansion of the African slave trade. And please spare me the red herring arguments like Africans captured and sold their own people into slavery. Just don't waste my time. But hell, to answer that, I turn to the powerful words of Atoba Caguano, the lesser known of abolitionist writers. He himself was a former slave turned abolitionist, who wrote in his Thoughts and Sentiments on the Evil and Wicked Traffic of the Slavery and Commerce of the Human Species, I must own to the shame of my own countrymen that I was first kidnapped and betrayed by some of my own complexion, who were the first cause of my exile and slavery. But if there were no buyers there would be no sellers. I will simplify it further for those who still might question. It is basic supply and demand, and I am awful at economics. Sure, Africans were enslaving their own people on a minute scale prior to the mid-1400s, as a punishment for very specific crimes. Upon realizing European demand for African slaves, the African world and power dynamic shifted. Crimes changed to create more reasons to enslave, and countless were outright kidnapped. 
But that escalation of the slave trade is a result of European demands for a labor force and our old favorite, the Columbian Exchange. Yes, Africans played a role in the African slave trade, but European roles were certainly more prominent. The numbers are truly unknown, as the number of slaves captured that died en route to the sea was rarely, if ever, cataloged. Initially, abolitionists wrongly estimated that some 20 million slaves were sent across the Middle Passage or the Atlantic Ocean and sold into slavery, but that number was extremely inflated to make their case stronger and some 9 million survived and were sold into slavery. Again, this is just the transatlantic slave trade and makes no account for interstate trade or issues of birth. Our story, however, begins in 1783, when a former slave turned abolitionist named Aluda Equiano brought news of a court ruling to leading abolitionist Granville Sharp. Now, it may seem like I'm getting off topic again, but to truly understand how the slave trade came to an end, one must have a proper understanding and accurate understanding of its reality. To do this, we must also understand a little bit more about the vessel itself. So one other factor that will come into play is the ways in which slaves were transported across the Middle Passage, the name given by history to the tragic voyage across the Atlantic aboard the horrifically fascinating slave ship. For more on the actual development of the slave ship, there is no better place to turn than Dr. Matthew Redeker's The Slave Ship. For us, it will suffice to say that the horrific conditions faced by Africans aboard slave ships like the famous Brooks were terrible beyond imagine. Cabin space was so tight slaves could not stand, and typically would have to go through a quote seasoning process upon entering the Americas just to be able to stand up straight before being sold into captivity for the rest of their lives. Many captives preferred suicide to the unknown horrors that awaited them, often by starving themselves or jumping overboard, but oral speculums were used to force feed those that resisted, and nets were placed on the sides of ships to prevent captives from jumping overboard. Let us turn to the source, Aluda Equiano, or Gustavus Vasa, a former slave turned abolitionist whose interesting narrative is the best known, fullest account of the British African slave trade. The first object which saluted my eyes when I arrived on the coast was the sea, and a slave ship, which was then riding at anchor and waiting for its cargo. These filled me with astonishment, which was soon converted into terror, which I am yet at a loss to describe, nor the then feelings of my mind. He continues, I was soon put down under the decks, and there I received such a salutation in my nostrils as I had never experienced in my life so that with the loathsomeness of the stench and crying together I became so sick and low that I was not able to eat, nor had I the least desire to taste anything. I now wished for my last friend, death, to relieve me, but soon to my grief two of the white men offered me edibles, and on my refusing to eat, one of them held me fast by the hands and laid me across, I think, the windlass and tied my feet, while the other flogged me severely. Equiano's story was not unique. As he notes, it was the story of millions, and these were the conditions faced by all on board the slave ship. Having briefly discussed the tragic nature of the trade of human beings, I think it is time to get to the central point of this episode, slavery's end, or at least the beginning of the end. For just as Catherine again was failing to free her country's serfs, elsewhere in the world, the world was changing. Let us turn to Great Britain to see how the slave trade finally started to fall apart. 
Like I said, our story will begin in 1783, when Aluda Equiano brought news of a court ruling to leading abolitionist Granville Sharp. Now this case was about an insurance claim, and actually the court ruled in favor of the insured. Let us jump back to 1781 very quickly, when a newly seized Dutch ship, the Zorg, had been seized by the British and refashioned the Zong, and set sail for Jamaica on September 6, 1781. Unsurprisingly, the ship in question was a slave ship. I mean, you had to see that coming. And under the command of a former slave ship doctor, Captain Luke Collingwood. The ship set sail with a, quote, cargo of more than 400 enslaved human beings. Four fucking hundred. So the song set sail for the Caribbean from Africa, but made some miscalculations along the way. Essentially, the crew had mistaken the French island of Saint-Domingue for Jamaica and got off course, overshooting their destination just as the ship was running dangerously low on drinking water. This is where the story gets really shitty, and I mean really shitty. The crew gathered together to determine a way to ensure a successful voyage to Jamaica. And in one of the most inhuman barbaric decisions ever made, the crew determined that it would be best to execute around 50% of the slaves on board, in order to ensure the crew's survival, and as much, quote, cargo as possible. Which in the right scenario, believe it or not, was actually legal. Over a series of days, from November 29th to December 1st, the crew chained three different groupings of slaves together and cast them overboard to their death. This act of murder, this malicious massacre, led to the death of 133 enslaved Africans, all in hopes of saving the dwindling water supply for the crew to make it to Jamaica. It rained the next day. By the time the Zong arrived in Jamaica, some 200 slaves remained, and the ship had some 400 gallons of water on board. The ship's logs had mysteriously vanished, and all the slaves that survived were sold into bondage, and the ship owner, Gregson, filed an insurance claim for his, quote, lost property. So how does this bring about the end of the slave trade? How did this event become known around the world? How does the case of the Zong become an international eye-opener? Well, eventually, the claim made it all the way to the King's Bench, basically Britain's Supreme Court, under the direction of William Murray, Chief Lord Justice Mansfield. The case Gregson v. Gilbert, better known as the Zong case, was one of an insurance claim for lost property at sea. The insurance company tried to claim that the actions on board the Zong in which human beings were cast overboard to their death were not, to quote the legal phrase, absolutely necessary. Turning to the source, the case made by the ship owner's lawyer argued, quote, What is this claim that human people have been thrown overboard? This is a case of chattels or goods. Blacks are goods and property. It is madness to accuse these well-serving honorable men, there we're talking about the ship crew, of murder. They acted out of necessity and in the most appropriate manner for the cause. The late Captain Cullingwood, yeah, that bastard died, acted in the interest of his ship to protect the safety of his crew. To question the judgment of an experienced, well-traveled captain held in the highest regard is one of folly, especially when talking of slaves. The case is the same as if Wood had been thrown overboard. The same as Wood, that man, Solicitor John Lee, he fucking sucks. The head of the King's Bench would later make a remark that the slave was more legally equal to a horse than a man. To quote historian Jeremy Crickler, not only did the ship see the 
mass murder of defenseless people, those responsible for the atrocity, or seeking profit from it, were relatively unshamed, to the extent of openly admitting to and justifying the murders in court. And finally, the owners of the ship sought to capitalize on the murders by claiming insurance on the massacred slaves. In the end, Mansfield ruled that the Gregson Ship Company did not have the right to claim financial reparations from their insurers. Some four years later, the news of the Zong had spread to the far corners of the world. Quote, enlightened minds were now forced to confront the true nature of the African slave trade head on. The bliss of their ignorance had ended. Let me be clear, the Zong case did not end slavery or the trade in slaves, but it brought to light the terrible nature of the slave trade for all to see. The Zong affair revealed the insidious truth to those who lived blissfully and willingly ignorant to the realities of the slave trade, much like we saw with Equiano's autobiography. Looking back, the Zong massacre seemed to be a point of no return for many Britons, maybe even for Lord Mansfield himself, and definitely for history. It may not have been the final nail in the coffin, but it would help to ignite the masses against slavery and the slave trade in Britain and beyond, and likely contributed to the creation of the Society for Effecting the Abolition of the Slave Trade, founded in 1787, shortly after the news of the Zong became more publicized. We should probably discuss for a second the biggest badasses of the abolitionist movement, the Quakers. The forgotten heroes of history, Quakers like Anthony Benizet and John Woolman fought against slavery in British America, while abolitionist leaders like Thomas Clarkson, Grenville Sharp, and William Wilberforce led the charge in Britain as it was Clarkson and Sharp that helped to convince Equiano to tell his story. A story that, quote, portrayed Africans as innocent victims and the white slavers as the uncivilized beings. His work, quote, helped in publicizing the inhumanity of the slave trade. There is some speculation about Equiano's story that he put forth by historian Vincent Coretta, but that is a story for another day, Equiano's Day. So in 1807, the British government passed the Slave Trade Act, which abolished the British international slave trade, and by 1833 had abolished slavery in all its forms. Whether it was the British government, the Quakers, or free blacks that told their tragic stories that led to the end of slavery in the slave trade, I cannot say. Certainly it was some combination of the three. But the tragic case of the Zong made the horrific nature of the trade so real, so inhuman, so disgusting that it could no longer be ignored. Some of you may be thinking, hey, Britain wasn't the first to end the slave trade or slavery. To that I say, you're correct, but they were the first of lasting impact. Let's look at a few cases. So one of the first enlightened European powers to abolish or change the institution of slavery and the slave trade was actually in the Kingdom of Portugal, whose empire, by Catherine's time, was reforming, becoming profitable, and under the rule of enlightened despot, and great for another day, the Marquis de Pommel, who served as first minister to the king, José I, of House Braganza. Pommel actually outright banned African slavery from existing in the Kingdom of Portugal and most of its empire, but he was kind of a piece of shit. So he didn't do this for some egalitarian reason. Instead, it was economic. So the crown jewel of Portugal was Brazil, where gold, sugar, and coffee served as the backbone of the Portuguese economy, all serviced by slave labor. To prevent slave owners from taking their slaves out of Brazil and moving elsewhere in the empire, Pommel freed the slaves pretty much everywhere but. So Pommel isn't going down in history as Europe's first great abolitionist. What about France, you might say? Well, the revolutionary French Republic of the Catholic 
Catherine episode did abolish slavery and the slave trade in 1794, following the events of the Haitian Revolution. But in 1802, Emperor Napoleon did reinstitute slavery. By 1815, French slavery and the trade was out, but it would take until 1848 for this truly to become a reality. And then there is Canada, well, Upper Canada, basically the areas around Ontario. In 1793, Canadians passed the Act Against Slavery, which banned the slave trade and set in motion a form of gradual emancipation. By the early 1800s, slaves were essentially free and guaranteed protections by the Canadian government. Canada became a sort of haven for runaway slaves in antebellum America, as it put them far out of reach from slave catchers, both physically and legally. So yeah, huzzah, Canada. Speaking of Canada, let's go to the drink. Today I'm drinking a pink whiskey lemonade, as we are still in the Catherinean saga. This drink is made with an affordable tasty Black Eagle whiskey. It's a simple concoction of one shot and a half of bourbon whiskey, some muddled and garnished basil, ice, and lemonade. Let's turn to the scale of greatness. In terms of taste, this drink is refreshing and perfect for this hot-ass summer day in Florida. Part of the reason it was so good is because of the whiskey chosen, Black Eagle. I am by no means a whiskey snob, and when it comes to mixing, I don't like spending a lot of money. But even straight, Black Eagle isn't bad. I'm not saying it's blue label. Hell, it might not even be as good as some Crown Royals, but damn it, I like it. This bourbon whiskey out of Princeton, Minnesota is aged three years to mild perfection. Four points for taste, especially when paired with this homemade lemonade. In rating the drink and whiskey simultaneously, I will say both have a high chance of return. I am always looking for a refreshing whiskey drink. Now, I'm not saying every whiskey drinker will enjoy Black Eagle, but hell, the neighbor said it was pretty damn smooth, and for some reason, that's good enough for me. Plus, it is the only whiskey I tend to buy, but like Suman, I can only ever find the damn thing at Total Wine, making it hard to return to sometimes. Four points for returnability. And again, like Suman Vodka, it is so returnable because of its amazing price. Coming in at only $13, I swear I'm not cheap, ask my wife. I just like to ask around while I'm shopping, and this brand was suggested to me. Black Eagle whiskey tastes better than whiskeys that I have paid double that amount for. It is perfect for mixing and damn good straight, and for the price, you just can't beat it. Six points for price, especially as many more expensive whiskeys I have tried taste like absolute shit. In the future, I would probably use rosemary or mint in this drink, but I had basil, so what can you do? Leaving the show with 14 out of 18 points, my Black Eagle Pink Whiskey Lemonade gets 5 crowns. Join my Facebook page at Drinks with Great Men in History for the recipe and see pictures of the drink, and probably me drinking it. And if you try this drink, be sure to let me know what you think in the comments. As a quick reminder, DGMH can be found on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just look me up at DGMH underscore History Podcast on Instagram and DGMH History on Twitter. Be sure to leave us a good, no, great, hopefully five-star review on Apple Podcast if you like the show, and be sure to tune in on Tuesday as Kelly Rizell and Luke Franchuk return to debate the greatness of Catherine the Great as she squares up against our reigning crown of greatness champion, George Washington. As we wrap things up, I want to say this. In the 1700s, the British Empire carried some 3.5 to 5 million slaves into bondage in the Americas to face the most horrendous conditions imaginable. 
This is a stain on the history of Britain. It is a stain on the history of the West. It is a stain that cannot be washed away. But in acknowledging that, we must also acknowledge the role of the British government in bringing about the beginning of the end of the African slave trade, as well as their efforts to ensure and police its end in the 1800s. The British government became a voice for abolition and even demanded it of several other countries, including Portugal. But it was the people, specifically Quakers, that tirelessly served as an ally of the African community, and it was the bravery of free men and women like Aluda Equiano, Otoba Caguano, and our old Old friend Phyllis Wheatley, who told their own stories. It was the case of the Zong that finally ended the bliss of European ignorance in regards to the African slave trade. Remember, listeners, as I always tell my students, ignorance isn't bliss, it's just ignorance. Cheers! Cheers!